Well, welcome to City Life. Good to see you all here. Uh, as they've been hitting on in announcements, I just wanted to let you know after service, we got engaged going on at the Hiltz's. You're, you're invited to that. And maybe you're like, oh, I've done that before. Corden Kelly, the CYP crew, they'll be doing second Saturdays at B-dubs in Harborview. So there's an option. And then if, if you're going to neither of those, then find somebody maybe you know, maybe you don't know. Invite them out to dinner. It's the great thing about Saturday night church. You get to hang out after, eat lots of food, and get to know some folks. So if you're CYP age, just know in a Harborview, B-dubs, Corden Kelly will be there. Yep, and there's probably college football on that y'all be watching. But if you've been coming this summer, uh, we, we just wrapped up two weekends ago. Because last weekend, I don't know if you were here, Pastor Fred came in and dropped Holy Spirit fire on all of us. It was incredible. So if you, didn't, if you weren't here for that, podcast it. Go back and watch the live stream, whatever you need to do, because it was phenomenal. But two weekends ago, we, re- we put a bow on the summer series we were in called Road Rules, which was just talking about the journey of faith that we go on as we follow Christ. And I was, I was wrapping up that series, I was telling you guys that after uh, that series, we would step into kind of just like an epilogue, a, a little uh, postscript for that series that we're going to call Finish Line Faith. So Finish Line Faith. And if you're taking notes, or if you got your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel's 30 tonight. And if you like to have an ammunition of dad jokes, see, I'm working on my catalog, been a dad now for like a year and a half. Uh, every line in Finland is a finish line. If you don't get it, you'll get that later. My dad jokes are strong. <laughs> but the big point is that regardless of what the personal course or, or map of our life looks like as we follow Christ, we'll all reach a finish line. It's inevitable. George Bernard Shaw once said that death is the ultimate statistic. One in one will die. So I'm not trying to start on an extra morbid foot tonight, right? But this is why Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says, it's better to spend your time at a funeral than at a party. Because it's good for us to reflect on the fact that at some point this life we live is going to end. We're going to come to a finish line. But the finish line and how we'll finish life usually is not at the top of our thoughts. Usually at the top of my thoughts is how am I even going to get to the end of the week, right? What are we going to eat for dinner? How are we going to pay for dinner, right? That's where my mind is most of the time. So the question is, how do I let my faith not be drowned out by the immediate? How am I going to make it to the finish line? Because, again, taking the, the long view of life, sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes uh, the long view gets blocked by daily demands, but I I read a great quote uh, by John Maxwell where he says, the person who forgets the ultimate is a slave to the immediate. The person who forgets the ultimate, who forgets the big picture, who forgets the end game, becomes a slave to the immediate. So how do we foster a faith that keeps the ultimate in view? How do we play the long game? How do we have a daily faith that's built for the finish line? So we're going to get to 1 Samuel 30 tonight, but I want to actually start what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, he's considering his finish line. He's getting to his finish line, and he, he's considering it, and he writes to Timothy and says, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. Paul's imprisoned as he writes these words. It's his last known letter that he writes, and and many believe that he's sitting there in prison awaiting his eventual execution. Now, it's not likely, and I hope it's not the case, that any of us will be martyrs for our faith. 
It's not likely, and I hope it's not the case, that any of us will be arrested and imprisoned for our faith. But I come to tell you tonight, we all will have a life sentence. We'll all have a life sentence. Maybe you're saying, speak for yourself, mate, <laughs> whatever. No, I'm not, I'm not saying you'll serve a life sentence. But I'm saying each one of us at the end of our life will have a life sentence. Because in the end, most of our lives and our contributions will commonly be summed up in a sentence. My old history teacher in high school, Mrs. Carroll, she taught world history, and she would give us tests, and usually, typically, there'd just be 30 names and events at the top of the page. We were supposed to pick 25, write down what it was, or what it was and what its significance was. Right, who was this and what's the significance? What was this, what's the significance? And we weren't supposed to take more than two sentences. One sentence was ideal. And it's not just tests. You know, if somebody asks, who was George Washington? Who was Martin Luther King Jr.? Who was Gandhi? So often our response is usually brief, one or two sentences. In the end, most of our lives and all our contributions will be summed up briefly. No matter the icon, the answer is often brief. You get a headline for what you did. In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, Paul is preaching when he makes mention of King David. And in summation of his life, he says of David, he served the purpose of God in his generation. I don't know if there's a more desirable life sentence or epitaph that I would want for my life, that I served the purposes of God for my generation. And we're going to get to King David tonight, probably one of the most recognizable kings in all of Scripture. But I want to start with one that maybe we overlook, maybe you've never even heard of, and his name is King Uzziah. And King Uzziah is in the book of Kings and Chronicles. He's one of the greatest kings of the Old Testament that nobody really knows about or talks about or examines. He was crowned king at 16 years old. He's a prodigy like, like LeBron James. He started young at 16, and he reigned for 50 years. He had wisdom. He had riches that, that didn't quite reach but rivaled what King Solomon had. He, he had military feats that, again, didn't quite reach but rivaled what King David did. He was a highly successful king. He sought the Lord early on in his reign, and he was richly blessed because of it. But then he became powerful, and then he became prideful, and he fell from great heights because he forgot God. And it was actually because of his prideful sins that God struck him with leprosy. And his life sentence was, according to Scripture, no more than here lies Uzziah, he died a leper. All his life, and that was his life sentence. And there's a whole other sermon for another time, a whole trail we could go down with Uzziah's life. Because there's so many sermons, so many books about how we hold on to God when we're in suffering, when we're in tough times. But I wonder if we don't need more that are about holding on to God when things are good. I think sometimes we miss the profound statement that Paul makes when he says in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret to being content in Christ in any situation, in plenty or in want. In our culture, we often focus on being content when we don't have a lot, right? I, I fight to be content when I don't have what I think I need or I'm in a season of want. But what about when we have a lot? We become content, but it's not content in Christ. It's content in what's in my bank account. It's content in my, my home, my kids, my picket fence, and my dog, right? Where, where is our contentment truly? In our culture, there's just as many, if not more, Uzziahs who become powerful and prideful, and they're toppled before the finish line. Their faith fades not because of want, but because of plenty. And Uzziah isn't alone amongst his peers either. You read through Chronicles. You read through Kings. And you see synopsises of king after king, and usually they're pegged as either good or bad. And some you get uh, long stories about their life, 
Lives full of activities. Again, both good and bad. But in the Old Testament, they go down again and again in the Bible with like these one-sentence summations of being good or bad kings. This lifetime of activity, but one legacy. Again, it's this powerful and potent reminder that we'll all have a life sentence. The question is, what will yours say? We shape that continually. And I don't know how my journey will end. I hope it's well done, good and faithful servant. I I hope it's he served the purposes of God in his generation. I don't know how my story will end, but I do know I don't want it to read that he gave up. I don't want it to read he gave up. I want a finish line faith. You know, I I know David Letourneau, he's a running machine. He would smoke us all. But I've run a couple marathons. David Letourneau runs a marathon like every other weekend, right? He's a beast. If you need running tips, ask him. But I've run a few marathons in my life and a few half marathons. So on my Nike running app, I've got like 1,500 miles on there. So we're talking thousands of miles. And I'm here to report. And I know I like to use scientific research and studies, but this is based on personal experience. I'm here to report that the runner's high a myth. Doesn't exist. I've run thousands of miles. Never have I been like, oh, this is heavenly, right? Like never. And you would think when you see people that are running in your neighborhood like every day, they must be pursuing some kind of runner's high. They got to be getting something more out of this. But I can report never, never experienced it. Thousands of miles, thousands upon thousands. What I have experienced and is very true, the wall. I don't know how many of you guys have been running and you've experienced the wall. See, I'm not alone in this. And I'm not talking like a, a, a three-mile run or hitting the, the, the seaboard trail over here. The first marathon I ran, the, the Marine Corps Marathon in D.C., mile 21, I was running past the Pentagon. Every time I see the Pentagon, I have to hold my tongue. Because I was running past the Pentagon, it was mile 21, and I hit the wall. You want a good laugh? YouTube the wall and maybe, like, funny. I was watching videos this week. It's just people, like trying to cross the finish line, looking like they're doing some kind of new hip-hop dance. I don't know, but, like, just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Now, I wasn't doing that, but you really hit a wall. Like, everything was tired. My teeth were tired. I, I don't know what my appendix does, but my appendix was like, I quit. I'm done. Like, it's a wrap. Everything just, it's, it's like your laptop running out of battery. It just shuts down like that. But I kept going. That was mile 21. Everybody's passing you, like, keep going, keep going, you got this. I'm like, shut up. (laughs) God, give me grace for these people so I don't trip this dude telling me to pick it up. But I kept running. I kept going, and I I crossed the finish line. And I share all that because in a life following Christ, like we talked about all summer long, it's a long haul. It's a marathon that takes endurance. It's not a sprint that is just like a burst here or there. Right? It, is a, it is a long haul that takes perseverance, it takes endurance, and we may hit a wall and we'll certainly be pushed to the limit. But how we respond in those moments is what determines our life sentence, our legacy, and how we cross the finish line. So we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, and I want to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to settle in on verse 6. And I'm going to read it here out of the New King James Version, starting in verse 1. It says, now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacking Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the woman and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men, they came to the city and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their son and their daughters had been taken captive. 
Then David and the people who were there with him wept and lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinam of the Jezreelites and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. Then it says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And that's what I want to look at tonight, those powerful six words. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Because here we are, his loved ones gone, the sons and daughters of his comrades were all captive, and the place that they called home was ashes. And that's what they were standing before, the blackened ruins of the place they called home, all their loved ones taken captive. The men of war that had been with David through all his story, right, they're distraught. They're so distraught, they're, they're talking about stoning him. David was distressed. Like the old school in the 80s and 90s, this is the point in the movie where you get the record scratch. And then it would zoom in on a freeze frame of the person's place, and they'd be like, yeah, that's me, King David. You're probably asking how I got here, right? <laughs> and to find out where we are in, in 1 Samuel 30, we have to turn back a half dozen chapters, a few chapters, because if you know the story of King David, right, he was anointed by God to follow Saul on the throne. And David went through some tough times, but David, when he went on the battlefield, God would use him in incredible ways. There was so much favor on David's life. And Saul, it drove him mad. Saul tried to kill him multiple times, tried to spear him to the wall. And then when David fled, he tried to chase him down and kill him that way. So at this point, we're going to read 1 Samuel 27. At this point, it's been about a year. Many people think that David's been hiding in caves, running from Saul. And finally, in 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, it says, David said in his heart, Now I will die one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me inside the borders of Israel, and I will escape from his hand once and for all. Again, we see here, David is distressed. He'd been hiding in caves. He'd been running for his life, escaping by a hair again and again. He's worn out. He's distressed. He's discouraged, he's despondent, and he's so afraid and fearful, he says, I'm going to die by the hands of Saul. Fear had wrestled his faith to the ground. And why do I say that? Because what's absent from this passage, if you read the, the life of David from beginning to end, you will see again and again and again and again that David, when he had to make a decision, am I going to go here, am I going to go into this battle, or am I going to move to here, he would always inquire of the Lord. But here in this passage, we don't see him inquiring of the Lord. He consults his fear, and he flees to the enemy of God's people, the Philistines, thinking if there's one place Saul isn't going to hunt for me, it's here. Now, I can't pretend to know uh, what God's plan was for David's life, but this move that he makes, it doesn't progress well. It escalates to the point where in the, in the chapters right before 1 Samuel 30, he's about to march into battle with the Philistines against the Israelites, the nation God anointed him to be king over, in the battle that Saul was going to die, and David again and again said he didn't want to harm Saul, and in the battle where Jonathan, David's best friend, was going to be killed. If he went through in that battle, man, can you imagine the, the shame and stain that would have been on his life? But maybe by the grace of God, the Philistine army, they look at their commander like, how are we going to let this guy go into battle with us? He's the Israelite that had been killing so many of us. So they say, look, we can't trust you. Sorry. Go home. Go back to Ziklag. 
And that's exactly what they do. And that's how we arrive at 1 Samuel 30. And that's powerful because you look at it, and in chapter 30, it seems like his decisions have done him in. He's literally about to be stoned by these guys that had supported him for years. His life and loved ones were kidnapped, up in smoke. And again, whether it was God's plan, perfect plan for him to be in that moment or not, one thing is sure. In life, you'll come against hard moments. There will be inclines. There will be walls that you hit. Whether it's due to your own foolishness and your failings or it's due to resistance and obstacles because you're pursuing God's plan and purpose for your life and you're just coming up against it. In life, we're going to face resistance. The question is, what will you do and how will you respond? And this is just a rabbit trail, but I want to encourage you tonight. If you're looking at your life and you're saying, yeah, I'm in a mess and it's because of my decisions, it's by my own making. Man, let me just encourage you. Your faith isn't proven by never failing. Your faith is proven by what you do when you fail. So (laughs) think about it. A sheep falls in the mud and a sheep will struggle to get out. A pig falls in the mud and it's like, oh, this is great. I'm going to hang out. Which one are you? Right, which one are you? Sometimes we buy the lie that faith never falters. Faith doesn't struggle. Faith never falls on its face. If that's the case, then explain Abraham's lies, Moses' murder, David's adultery, Peter's denials. All of them failed. All of them faltered, but their faith isn't called into question in Scripture because their faith caused them to repent, get back up, and keep moving forward. It was a finish line faith. I might trip, fall on my face in the middle of this run, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to finish. Make no mistake, God's faithful, they still mess up. But one thing they never do is give up. They have a finish line faith. So David in 1 Samuel 30, again, to return to him, he's distressed, he's discouraged, but this time, unlike Chapter 27, he's not despondent. He's not despaired. And I want to just spend the rest of our time tonight looking at these six words that David encouraged himself in the Lord. I read that, and I read this passage, and I've always wanted to study it because it challenges me. I'm kind of envious because I've been discouraged in life before, and it seems like David here, in the worst of situations, just like walks up to a switch and flips it, and all of a sudden he's encouraged in the Lord and everything's good. I often wonder, what did this look like? Because I want to be able to do that, encourage myself in the Lord when I'm in the worst of it, and all of a sudden I'm picked up and ready to go. And I selfishly hope, when I read this passage, that he's over there talking to himself. Right? They might look at, be looking at him like he's crazy, but, but David's over here like really encouraging himself and talking out loud because I used to and still do talk out loud quite a bit. Uh, Steph can tell you. She's back there. When we got married, she'd be like, what? I'm like, uh, nothing. Because <laughs> I talk to myself a lot. I was a bachelor from 21 to 26, and my roommate, hardly there at the same time. Wasn't quite Tom Hanks talking to volleyballs and castaway. But I talked to myself a lot, and, and, and Steph would walk in on me talking to myself a lot. And <laughs> when that happens, you feel judged. You are judged. Yeah. But, but psychologists... They say it's good, right? Speaking out loud can help you organize your thoughts, decide what you want, and set goals. Talking to yourself helps you concentrate. It speeds up response times. It helps us process information. So if you get caught talking to yourself and you feel judged, you feel shame, just remember, everybody does it. Just do it at different volumes, right? Some of us are smart. We just don't do it out loud. We do it in our head. It's what you could call internal monologue or a private speech. But the same part of your brain that you use when you talk out loud is used when you're 
there's that inner voice and that inner monologue. The same part of your brain is firing. So whether David here uses his audible voice or not, he's talking to himself. He's encouraging himself in the Lord. And I want to be able to master this, to encourage myself in the Lord. Make fear flee. Have a faith that rises up in the face of long odds and doesn't shrink back because that's the kind of faith that gets us to the finish line and doesn't flounder, doesn't falter, doesn't fade out. You know, the church often divides on the idea of once saved, always saved, and is that biblical, and you see this divide there and this debate, but here's what we all agree on. A saving faith is one that endures to the end. You could say once saved, always following, right, all the way to the finish line. Salvation is not like a a one-time moment at an altar. It's a posture of repentance and pursuit of Christ that lasts a lifetime. But on that path, that lifetime journey, again, there will be walls. There will be hard times. But that shouldn't derail faith's pursuit. And I hope for you that when you come in moments where you're discouraged, maybe you come into a service like tonight where Amanda's up here on the mic, she says, I want to encourage you. I hope when, when you're in moments in life where you need encouragement that you've got people around you to speak it into you, right? That's why the, the body of Christ and all those one another's in the New Testament is so powerful because when you do life with people, they can speak encouragement into your life. We so often think of accountability as like, don't do that, that's bad. Well, so often accountability, having people in your life is so they can be the ones around Moses that held up his arms, that's accountability too. But again, there's gonna be moments in life where you might be more like David in this moment where you're, it's you. (laughs) You're on an island. There's nobody rallying around you. You know what's rough about marathons? (laughs) It's such a vicious design. Like, you start surrounded by hundreds, maybe even thousands of people, and there's like this adrenaline rush. That's why people go out way too fast. They crash at the end. And usually when you're crashing in the second half, everybody's spread out. And unless it's, it's hundreds of thousands of people in this race, like when I did the Newport News Marathon by mile 23, it's just me. <laughs> There's nobody passing me going, hey, pick it up. You got this. There's no crowd cheering me on. You're in isolation. And sometimes in life, on our journey, it can be the same way. For David, he's fleeing from Saul. All these mighty men had joined him. But in this moment, these men that had been an encouragement to him had turned on him. He was on an island in need of encouragement. And sometimes in life, we'll find ourselves in need of encouragement, and the only person around to encourage us is ourselves. (laughs) But sometimes it's hard because in life, if you're like me, I struggle to keep myself encouraged. Disqualifying compliments, you're like, yeah, but, in your head, you're thinking, yeah, but, canceling encouragement. And we can just sow these seeds of discouragement with our internal dialogue, the dialogue that's always running in our head, the script that's always being written in our head. We too often, we too often let discouragement be the dominant discourse in our head. And we got to ask ourselves, when times get hard, what's usually, what am I usually thinking? Is it, is it encouraging or is it discouraging? What's the common narration that starts in your mind? Because the mature believer, like David, will take ownership of their encouragement. They'll take ownership of their encouragement. David encouraged himself in the Lord. The second question, not was it audible, the second question I think to myself is, okay, what was he saying? Like, what did he say? Encouraging himself, that's pretty broad. He could have been saying all kinds of stuff, but we don't know for sure, but we have a good idea because kind of kept a prayer journal. Psalm, right? 150 psalms we have. And you begin to read through psalms and you see times where he's discouraged and he's down. And you can almost see, like, he's just writing down this train of thought that's in his head, all this discouragement, all these things that are happening to him. And then he 
interrupted. We see in Psalm 42, he interrupts his internal dialogue. Starts out and he's saying, day and night, I have only tears for food. While my enemies continually taunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. He goes on and on like this. It's almost like reading Job. But twice in the same psalm, David interrupts his discourse of discouragement and asks, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. And there's two powerful steps here. First, he interrupts the voice of discouragement. He says, pause, be quiet. But then he points to the Lord. That's our source of encouragement. Not just about puffing yourself up like you're about to shoot a, a crucial free throw in a game and like you got this. Or you're about to go into a presentation for work and you're just thinking, you got this, you got this. No, it's David was able to encourage himself in the Lord. And it was enabled by the Lord. This is the synergistic nature of faith that God enables it, but it requires our response. Right, God provides his word and he spoke it and the Holy Spirit spoke it into being, but we often fail to speak it over ourselves and our situation and activate the faith we need. And I would tell you tonight, no voice is more influential in your life than your own because nobody talks to you more than you do. Again, we all talk to ourselves. The reality is you talk to yourself. You might be like, yeah, I don't do it out loud, so what? We all talk to ourselves. And like we talked about it earlier, that's a good thing. Psychologists have proven all these different ways it's a good thing, unless they say it's negative. Right? We don't want this discourse of discouragement in our mind. We have to stop letting discouragement and self-doubt be the discourse, take control of the script, and take ownership of our encouragement. We have to preach to ourselves. You don't have to be a, a, a reverend or a pastor to preach because we all need to be preaching to ourselves. The most important pulpit I step up to is the one in here <laughs> because it's where I encourage myself, edify myself, exhort myself with God's word. Again, the most important voice in your life is your own because nobody talks to you more. So consider this your, your ordination of sorts. <laughs> I, I dub thee... <laughs> Under God, qualified to preach to yourself. <laughs> Amanda, that, that great encouragement. Not only did she say, I'm going to encourage you, and that ties into tonight. She talked about, read the word. Read the word of God. Be in the word of God because that's how we encourage ourselves. It's not just by like, oh, I got this. No, no, no. What does God say? What are his promises? What are his purposes? That's how we take ownership of our encouragement. Learn to encourage yourself. We have to learn to silence our flesh, silence our fears with faith. You might say, well, that sounds great, but how? Faith? is fueled by God's word. I once heard it called the, the faith triangle, where you see in scripture that hearing the word initiates faith, right? Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Speaking the word activates faith. David says in Psalm 116, I believe, therefore I said. And then doing the word demonstrates faith, right? It says in James that faith without works is dead. So hearing the word initiates it, speaking the word activates it, doing the word demonstrates it. But I think so often we skip over speaking. We go right from hearing it to doing it. We think, well, I believe it. Well, then, then speak it. Speak it in your mind. Speak it in your heart. Speak it over yourself. Speak it over your circumstances. So often we talk about our circumstances, but we never speak God's word over our circumstances. Circumstances, they can't rob you of your faith. That might sound counterintuitive, but circumstances can't rob you of your faith. What will rob you of your faith is your perspective of them, the way you interpret them, and the way you dialogue about them in your head that ultimately robs you of faith. David was about to be stoned, had lost his family and his home, yet he was able to encourage himself in the Lord. 
that inner voice in your head, it, it'll frame your world. And if you can frame it properly by speaking God's truth to it. And I've learned over the years, memorizing Psalms is great. There's one fuel for my prayer life. It's, it's having Psalms memorized, and then prayers flow from that. And I believe there are three there's three verses in my life that have been such an encouragement for me that David wrote. And I would believe that in, in, in 1 Samuel 30, he could have been pointing to these verses and speaking them back in his head as he encouraged himself. So again, we ask, what was he saying? Let's look at some of the Psalms and, and look at ways that he encouraged himself. We already looked at Psalm 42 where he said, why are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. But he also says in Psalm 138.8, right, when worry and anxiety about tomorrow they come. How do I encourage myself in the Lord? Psalm 138.8 says, the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. In the New Living Translation, it says, he will work out his plans for my life. We should prophesy that over ourselves because let me tell you, fear is a false prophet. It tells you a hundred different ways. God won't be faithful to you. His plan will fail you. His promises will fail you. His purposes will fail you. And if you let that play again and again in your mind enough, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, a false prophecy. It becomes a false belief. It shapes our reality and it cripples our faith. When we live with self-doubt instead of God faith. You know, the biggest opponent to your faith is not circumstances. The biggest opponent to your faith is not a person. The biggest opponent to your faith is the fear that can take root when you just have this discourse of discouragement again and again and again. But tell yourself, the Lord will prepare, excuse me, fulfill his purpose for me. God is a good shepherd. His rod, his staff, they chase away fear. He puts our feet back on the path. He leads us on the path of righteousness to green pastures. And that's the second verse that encourages me so much in life. When discontent, discontentment fuels discouragement, I fall into the comparison trap. Right, see things, that, and I'm like, man, that must be nice. A verse that encourages me again and again and again is Psalm 16, 6, where David says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That our plot of land, it's a good one. That God has blessed us. So often we get caught looking over the fence, somebody else's boundary lines, where the lines have fallen for other people. And that's when we step into the comparison trap. Let me tell you, we need to, everybody start, talks about thinking outside the box. Sometimes we need to think inside the box again. We can so easily create false narratives about how hard life is. This doesn't work. The universe is out against me. David certainly could have said this. God anointed me, but look at how much I've been running, hiding in caves. All, all of this is conspiring against me. But he encouraged himself. Everything we need to unlock what's in our hearts, God has put in our hands. Sometimes we need to think inside the box again. Nehemiah ended up in Jerusalem rebuilding it, but he started being faithful as a cupbearer, right? Joseph was faithful as a slave, in prison, in all these different ways before God brought him where he needed to be. David was faithful in caves. David was faithful multiple times when he could have killed Saul himself to not do it, and yet God still brought him to the throne. And this was all, again, within what God had blessed him with. God had said this was going to happen. It took patience. It took endurance. And we see it with David. Sometimes we have to think inside the box. We overestimate what we can do with what we don't have, and we underestimate what we can do with what we already have. Start thinking inside the box again, because if this is true, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, then it's right there for us. Again, few phrases will, will 
silence discontent and discouragement in my life when I simply walk out the front door, start going for a walk in the neighborhood with Raj, there's the sun setting. I think, man, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. In Psalm 23, again, it talks about green pastures, but, but there's another verse in Psalm 23 that's pretty meaningful to me because when I'm in the middle of a mess or I'm in the middle of a, a struggle, how do I encourage myself? I remember Psalm 23, verse 5, where David says, you prepare a table for me before me in the presence of my enemies. For David, God had been present with the lion and the bear. God had been present with the giant Goliath. God had been present with this King Saul who tried to spear him multiple times, who chased him down trying to kill him. In the presence of caves that were dark, damp, and depressing, God had been faithful. He'd rescued him then. Will he not rescue me now? In the presence of these friends that have become my enemies, these mighty men that now want to stone me. And you no doubt have walked through valleys before, through betrayal, through hardship, through pain. God's been faithful in the past. He's going to be faithful again. I think so often we can get spiritual amnesia where we forget God's past faithfulness. And it gives us fear in the present. You know, Paul tells us, give thanks in every circumstance. Give thanks in every circumstance. Praise God in every circumstance. It's not because God needs the praise. It's because we need the reminder. Give thanks in every circumstance because that's what sparks the gratitude we need to remember that even in the presence of our enemies, God prepares a table for us where we can have communion with him which is truly the one thing of all else that we need in life. We need to remember the faithfulness of God. But if I could have the worship team come up. Again, David keeps this Psalms basically a prayer journal. As he's going through life, so many theologians have, have said, well, this psalm was probably written when he was in the caves. This psalm was probably written at this phase in life. And you just see the course of David's life and these prayers that he was praying to God. I keep a journal. It's nothing like Psalms. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that good. And I don't write songs journaling either. But I was rocked recently when I learned how the song, It Is Well, the hymn, right? It was written. I didn't know the circumstances that the person who wrote that song went through. Now, I don't know if you know, but I'm going to read it. This is from the book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, where he, he spells it all out. And it says, in the 1870s, Horatio Spafford was a successful Chicago lawyer and a close friend of evangelist Dwight L. Moody. Spafford had invested heavily in real estate, but the Chicago fire of 1871 wiped out his holdings. His son died shortly before the disaster. So Spafford and his family desperately needed a rest. So in 1873, he planned a trip to Europe with his wife and four daughters. While in Great Britain, he also hoped to help Moody and Sankey with their evangelistic tour. But last minute business called, caused Spafford to delay his departure, but he sent his wife and four daughters on the ship as scheduled, promising to follow in a few days. On November 22nd, the ship was struck by the English ship Lockern, and it sunk within 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors landed at Wales, and Mrs. Spafford cabled her husband the brief message, saved alone. When Horatio Spafford made the ocean crossing to meet his grieving wife, he sailed near the place where his four daughters had sunk to the ocean depths. There in the midst of his sorrow, he wrote these unforgettable words that have brought solace to so many in grief. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate. He hath shed his own blood for my soul. 
I read that. Didn't know that for the first time months ago. And I'm thinking, how? Right? I can't even fathom writing something that beautiful when walking through something that hard. But then I begin to think, man, what voices of depression was he silencing when he began to write and speak those words? What voices and dialogue of discouragement was he interrupting when he decided, I'm going to write this praise to God? You see, like David in Psalm 42, I'm sure in his prayer life, he had a litany of just, why God, why, why? But here he's interrupting it. He's saying, no, 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 no. Why are you downcast? I will put hope in God. It is well with my soul. So if we could stand, we're going to go into worship. But my question for you as we close is what is discouraging you right now? It might be one thing. It might be a flood of things where it's just this discourse and dialogue of discouragement. But what's discouraging you right now? And what does it look like for you to interrupt that discouragement, to interrupt yourself? Because I'll tell you tonight that you can love your life, you can stir your faith, even if nothing changes on the outside. Because you can change the dialogue on the inside from discouragement to encouragement. And that's not just through puffing ourselves up and sticking out our chest and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's by encouraging ourselves in the Lord. And the way you do that is turning to his word. And one practical way you do that is what David again says in the Psalms. I believe, therefore I spoke. What do you need to speak over your life again? Maybe it's one of these verses we, we, we looked at in Psalms, but maybe it's when, when you're feeling temptation, you need to speak to the enemy, that verse from Corinthians, that I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, so your temptation can kick rocks. <laughs> maybe it's shame and you, you need, just need to speak over your life. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Speak that to your guilt, speak that to your shame. Maybe it's feelings of defeat because of past decisions or the mess you've even made and just remembering there's no condemnation. Not only that, but we're more than conquerors, it says in the same chapter. But God, I pray that we'd be able to, like David, say words like, you're going to fulfill your purposes for me. Your boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That even when I'm surrounded by enemies and darkness, you prepare a place for me. And God, I pray that that would spark our faith, ignite our faith. God, that we would use that so that we can continue to demonstrate our faith by the way we live our lives. So God, I ask, help us take ownership of our encouragement. Help us to take the words you've given it and not just hear it and then attempt to demonstrate it, but help us to apply it by speaking it over our life, speaking it in our mind and interrupting that discourse of discouragement that the enemy tries to sow, the fear that the enemy tries to take root, Lord God. Help us to speak your word, to preach to ourselves. And let that be the fuel that will get our engine to the finish line. God, I thank you that for each one of us here, there's a destiny, there's a purpose, there's a unique calling. And because of that, each one of us is going to leave a legacy. Each one of us is going to have an impact in your kingdom, have an impact in your church, have an impact in their family and through their family and their neighborhoods and their workplace, Lord God. But I pray that you would give us this finish line faith, God, that doesn't quit. Even when we do falter, even when we do fall, it's the faith that picks us up and makes us run again. Because, God, we want to stand before you. Jesus, we desperately want to see you at the end of our days. And, God, I pray, I know it's my prayer that, that you would say, well done, good and faithful servant. So, God, tonight, help us to interrupt discouragement, silence the enemy. And even right now, we do it through worship. We do it through praise. We're going to sing Psalm 91 again. And these words come straight from Scripture. 
And if you're struggling, if you're grappling with something, let these words just saturate your mind, your spirit, and your heart. Let's sing Psalm 91 to Jesus.